Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of I Am Steve R, and I am Steve R, and uh, before we get started, I want to thank you guys so much. I I, uh, I scarcely know where to begin to thank you all for your support so far. It's been incredible. The show, um, we're able to get uh, all of the distribution points handled out. The show is now available on iTunes and on uh, Google Play and Amazon and Stitcher and so many other places, Spotify, you know, wherever you find podcasts, the show is now available. So if you will, uh, you know, subscribe to the show, that way you get one, because the schedule is going to be somewhat uh, irregular. I talked about doing this show weekly, and I wasn't sure if I would. And, um, you know, the, the reaction that I had from some people after the first show uh, was very humbling. Uh, let's just say that. And uh, I had a, had some people reach out to me, some people that were complete strangers. So, I mean, within... Within an hour of the show going live, I had uh, you know some phone calls and some messages from complete strangers, and I guess maybe strangers is not the right word to use. Perhaps they're friends that I hadn't met yet, but uh, people that share a common affliction with me. Uh, some still in the throes of addiction, you know, sharing their thoughts and saying, "Hey, someone shared the show with me, or stumbled across the show. Don't know anything about you, but uh, listen to this and." Uh, I heard a lot of commonality in the things that you were saying. And so I thank you for that. But I want this show to be of use to you, and I want it to be somewhat interactive. Your anonymity is guaranteed. If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have uh, topics you'd like to hear addressed, feel free to find me on Facebook or on any form of social media. I'm at Scout Steve R on all forms of social media. Uh, try to be consistent over the years just for that very reason. But uh, if you have questions or if there's something that, you, that you're just eating your lunch and say, you know what, 
I go to meetings, and maybe I don't want to bring this up. Maybe it's because I'm a little bit uh, bashful, and um, I don't want to be judged, whatever. Uh, no judgment here. I can assure you that there's not anything that you've dealt with that uh, I haven't dealt with or had some type of experience with. So feel free to reach out. The inbox is always open. Your anonymity is 100% guaranteed. The title of today's show is A Life So Dishonest. And, um, you know, we talk about the tenets of recovery. The, you know, the first one, the pillar, the foundation of any program of recovery begins with honesty. And so uh, let's kind of break that down just a little bit. I'll share some personal sides with you today as well. But uh, Webster's Dictionary defines honest as free from fraud or deception, genuine, real, humble, plain. And then definition two is reputable, respectable. So when we begin to think about what it means to be honest, and uh, one of the things you hear a lot in the recovery rooms is about having rigorous honesty. Rigorous, of course, is being thorough and steadfast. And I, I was not fully aware of how dishonest I had been until I was kind of confronted with the probability and the possibility of having to get honest with myself mainly. Because we go back to the whole fraud and deception thing. I mean, it's easy to, to delude yourselves into thinking, well, this is just about me and uh, I've got it handled. I can handle this. And uh, the most dangerous lies that we tell are the ones we tell them ourselves. And that's how it was for me. And I'm, I'm, again, this is not a vanity project or anything of that. I'm just trying to speak down in a language that people can, can appreciate from uh, you know, nearly 29 years of recovery. I got clean and sober December 10th, 1991. I haven't had a relapse yet. But wh- why do we lie? And that, that's one of the questions, I guess, that um, you have to kind of really ponder on just a little bit. Why, why do we lie? You know, I think at the end of the day, the main reason that we lie is because we don't want to face consequences for our actions, thoughts, beliefs, so we just don't talk about them. And then that becomes a bit of a habit. It becomes a habit of, well, you know, I don't feel the need to explain myself to anybody, and so I won't. Well, in this life, there are some relationships, whether they be, you know, with a significant other or a parent or you know, an accountability partner or a supervisor, a boss, somebody that uh, is in some type of authoritative position, you know, there, there is an expectation of honesty. There is an expectation of integrity. And so in our personal lives, you know, it's important to kind of maintain that. I mean, I, I think that's the, that's the paramount of every relationship, whether it be friendship or platonic or romantic is, you know, there has to be a core of honesty. And so sometimes we're scared to tell the truth because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or we don't want to deal with any drama or we don't want to deal with any consequences. So we just kind of say what we need to to get through the moment. There's so much of that in, in, uh, in, in addiction where we just try to manage through the crisis of the moment. And so we say whatever we need to to kind of get through that. Now, my dad used to tell me when I was a young man, is that if you tell the truth, you never have to remember how you told it. Well, you know, back when I was uh, out you know, practicing addiction and then enjoying chemical dependency, I always had to remember how I told people things. I always had to remember what lies I told because there was a good chance I was going to have to tell them again. And then what happens is each lie builds upon the, the next. And you begin to 
to lose a sense of yourself because you become kind of a caricature of yourself because your authentic self is buried underneath. And for me, a lot of it was, you know, a fear of judgment. Like I didn't want to tell the truth about who I was, what I was doing, or the things that I was about because I didn't want to be judged. You know, I grew up in a very religious family. And so there were some things and some behaviors that I was involved in that uh, did not really jihaw with uh, the things that I had been taught. And so you kind of lie and cover that stuff up just because of the fact I, I just didn't want to deal with all of that. I didn't want to deal with somebody saying, hey, well, you shouldn't do this. Well, I knew that I shouldn't do it, but I was doing it either way. I mean, you know, you know, the fear of, uh, you know, eternal judgment or something like that, you know, was not enough of a deterrent you know, to prevent me from doing the things that I wanted to do. And, and once I got involved in those things and those vicarious pleasures, then the next thing you know, uh, I was kind of off to the races. You know, I began to see other people do things and I began to emulate what they did. I'm like, hey, this person is cool. I want to be like this person. And, and there's so many people out there too that uh, they want to attribute a lot of this stuff to peer pressure. And that does play a factor. But at the end of the day, you know, we are all thinking people responsible for our own actions. And so at the end of the day, there is so much of that that takes place. And, uh, you know, by using peer pressure, it becomes a bit of an excuse. You say, well, you know, he just got around the wrong people or she got around the wrong people. Next thing you know, uh, she was easily manipulated or they were talked into this or whatever. But at the end of the day, that's the people that love us basically making excuses for us. You know, I know for me that uh, I don't think anybody in my family fully appreciated how bad my problem was. I think even to this day, there are some people that love me that are probably listening to these shows for the first time and finding out some things about me that they never knew before. When I went into uh, Pine Grove Recovery there in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, I was surrounded by some very gifted and talented people that were in the recovery community that uh, were fully vested in me recovering. And the first thing that they used to get me on me about is that I wouldn't be honest. I was out of practice. <laughs> so I, you know, I was so used to telling a lie. I mean, uh, one of the jokes that we tell sometimes that you know, certain groups of people would lie even if the truth was better. Well, that was me. You know, sometimes I lied just to kind of keep, you know, keep people guessing. I, I didn't want people to know. But I remember when Robert P., who eventually became my sponsor, really pressed me in Pine Grove, to be honest. He's like, hey, what did you do when this happened? And I would try to find a way and say, well, you know, I was with these guys, and they, they did this, and they did that. No, no, no. W what did you do? What did you do? What was your part in this? And he asked some very probing questions, and it made me extremely uncomfortable because I was so used to being able to, again, to kind of lie to get through the crisis of the moment that I never had anybody really pin me down and kind of force me to be honest. And I was very resentful of that. I rejected that. But one of the things that I learned probably straight away is that when I was honest about something, when I said, hey, listen, I did this, and as hard as it was to say it and as difficult as it was to admit it, I found acceptance rather than judgment. And that was a, really a revelation for me because I expected, again, you know, you, you, you grow up and, you, and you, you assign motive to people and you begin to think, oh, well, this is how they're going to react. You're, you know, it's like we're not even fair to people. We fully expect them to, to say and reject us 
And a lot of that too is kind of the disease talking. Like, well, they'll never understand you. They don't love you. They'll never accept you for who you truly are. And so, but when I did get honest about some things, I found that not only did the professionals at Pine Grove Recovery in Hattiesburg accept me, but I found that my peers in recovery looked at me and said, hey, hey man, I did that too. Or I did worse. Or I understand. And it's okay. And it was really the first time in a long time that somebody said, you know what, it's going to be okay. I didn't have anybody to preach to me. I didn't have anybody to condemn me. I didn't have anybody to make me feel guilty. Within the program and within uh, you know, the, my peer group of uh, people in recovery, I found a level of acceptance I never expected. And so I'm going to share some things with you today because I, I know that there are many of you that are listening to the show that are saying, you know, well, Steve, you don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't. But I can assure you I could probably top your cake. And I don't say that from a vanity standpoint. I, I say that because I, I can be completely honest with myself about the, the, place, the things that I have done the places that I have been. I no longer choose to close the door on them, as the big book tells us, because I have learned from them, and in many respects, I count it all as gain. That doesn't mean that I didn't make amends for the things that I did, or at least attempted to make amends uh, for some of the things that I did. And, and, and the only time that I did make amends is when, like in step 10, except when to do so would injure them or others. I guess it's step nine, excuse me. Pardon me. Pardon me. Nobody called Bill W. But, uh, you know, some of the lies, the biggest lies that I told were, were for nothing. I mean, it's like I didn't gain anything from it. It was also temporary. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to tell you is one of those things that, uh, you know, even today, you know, something that happened nearly 30 years ago, it's, it still makes me ashamed. It does. I think to myself, especially as I've grown and matured, I begin to look back and I think, you know, how, how incredibly insensitive I had to be to make a comment like this. So, so here's the deal. Uh, so this is back when uh, I was living, you know, in Hattiesburg and I was working, you know, kind of a you know, run-of-the-mill job in addition to, uh, you know, the party and then I was DJing and that sort of stuff. And then on weekends, sometimes we'd be able to go do shows. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in dance clubs and that sort of stuff. And uh, so this group of friends of mine, they were all going to be off work and they were all going to go to New Orleans. And we already had the drugs lined up. Well, I had to work. I was supposed to work basically the whole weekend. And then all of my friends were going to be down in New Orleans, which at the time was one of my favorite cities, because you could kind of go down there and blend in. There was all, you know, there was all these uh, you know, colorful people and colorful, colorful personalities down there. You could go, and, and it was so different than being from small-town Mississippi. And so I wanted to go. And so I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, I can't just quit the job. What if I could just miss the job? Or what if I could find somebody to cover for me? Well, you know, that's difficult to do. And so what I did is uh, I looked up one of my manager's phone numbers, and I called them, and it's probably 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. They had a brand-new baby, so it was quite the intrusion. And so even in itself, if, if, if I just stop there, it's already bad enough. Call somebody, middle of the night, said, hey, listen, I'm not going to be able to come to work. And I told them that my girlfriend had gotten killed in a car accident. Well, there was no car accident. There was no girlfriend. But I said that just to be able to get off work for the weekend so I could go party in New Orleans. And what that's thinking for a second. That goes to show you what a sick person that I was. And I could contrive some lie like this and then 
to make it believable, call somebody in the middle of the night, maybe, I may, maybe even shed a few tears on the phone, to manipulate somebody and let me off from a, you know, from a job that, that was basically anybody could get, wasn't of any importance whatsoever. But I called them and waked them up with this lie. So I go and I go to party in New Orleans and uh, I don't even remember it. I was so high the whole weekend, drunk the whole weekend. I couldn't tell you anything about it. I remember driving back across the, uh, the causeway uh, on Sunday morning with the sun coming up. I remember that part of the trip. And I get back and I go to work on Monday and there's a card waiting for me, a sympathy card that all the other employees had signed. And so they hand it to me and I'm like, oh, what's this? I goes, oh, it's a card. We all kind of got together. We're all so sorry. I'd, I'd even forgotten about the lie that I told. And to this day, I think to my, I think back and I say, you know, this is um, it's about as bad as it gets. You know, all these people that I was working with or whatever, and I, and I, and I say these things just to go get high. That might have been one of the worst ones I told, but it wasn't the only one that I told. Because whenever I had the opportunity to go get high or to go get drunk, especially on somebody else's dime, I made myself available for those opportunities. And so I was completely dishonest. Completely dishonest. Anytime an opportunity came up, I took advantage of it. It's one of those things, too, I've always been a bit of an idol, too. And so, I, you know, I've been always been able to get by on this a little bit of sleep. As I get older, it, it, it matters uh, a little more to me. You know, I'm aging a little bit, but, uh, but you know, I lived with a handful of guys. I knew some other guys. You know, I was in a band with some guys. And, uh, and so somebody was going somewhere every night, which meant that I was going somewhere most nights. And, uh, you know, we talk about being dishonest. And um, so I, I hid, I, I used drugs with my roommates, but I also hid drugs from my roommates because I always wanted to have drugs because I never knew if they were going to run out. And so it's like I would hide my drugs and then I would use their drugs. And then when they were out, I still had stuff. And um, I smoked marijuana every day, every day. It's like I see these people today they say, oh, it's wake and bake. I invented all that. You know, we, we were doing that, you know, 30 years ago. And so it's, it's not a new phenomenon. It's also not very healthy for you. I remember going to, uh, you know, when I had to go to the doctor, when I went to rehab, they, you know, you, you go, they have you get checked out by a medical doctor and all. And, and I had uh, done some damage to my esophagus because I had smoked much, too much marijuana. It's an unfiltered cigarette, right? And uh, I damaged my esophagus. And I got to a point towards the end there that every time that I smoked marijuana, I vomited every single time. But I kept smoking. I mean, now that would scare a normal person to death. But it didn't me because I was an addict. And people say, oh, marijuana's not addictive. I'm not sitting here and telling you that it is. I'm just telling you that I was a drug addict. And that's one of the things that I did on a daily basis that caused me consequences. I don't know that I was physically addicted to marijuana, but I know that every day when I woke up, I felt the need to go smoke a joint to kind of get the day started. And, and I would go to work high. I'd come home, smoke again. That's just the reality of the situation that I was in. And so not only do I did a lot of myself and a lot of my roommates, you know, but I, I lied to the people that were my using buddies because I couldn't trust them. You know, I, I trusted them to keep my secrets, but then I kept secrets from them. 
And it's so interesting, too. I mean, you know, there was never any shortage of people, you know, friends. You know, when, when you have drugs, and when you have drugs, you have friends. And I had some friendships, too, that, you know, the, the, the ties that bound were, were drugs. You know, the only time I saw them was when they were holding or when they were sharing or when I was out and needed something from them. I had a, uh, a guy that in, uh, in my condominium complex that, uh, you know, was a guy that I used to buy from. And so I was always so paranoid because of my roommates and everybody else. I kept a lot of these things private. And so I was always a little bit worried about, you know, buying drugs from an undercover narcotics agent. I was always scared to get busted. And so what I would do is I would go by and uh, give him the money on one day. And then he would, when I would be gone at work or out for the weekend or whatever, he would then go in the back door of the condominium and go in and put it under my bed. Well, that way there's never a transaction, right? I mean, that's the way that I saw it. He's like, if I just go give him the money, you know, and then I don't, I don't accept the drugs at the time, then I'm just giving a friend, you know, 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And then he slips into my apartment, and I could always have plausible deniability, and so I didn't know he was doing that. But that's, that's what I told myself. I said, well, this is a way for me to game the system. If they never see the exchange, then I could never be held responsible. And I got ripped off sometimes, too. I remember buying, a, I gave him some money for a sheet of acid because I was thinking if I buy this sheet of acid, then I can sell it to my friends and recoup the money and then I can have all this acid to get high whenever I want to. And then I get the sheet of acid and it's completely bunk and then I'm out the money. And you try to go get a little payback there and you try to get your money back or whatever. And sometimes it works out, but most times it doesn't. That's the thing about when you're in the drug game, at some point everybody gets ripped off. Everybody knows it. It's part of the deal. Doesn't make it any easier when it happens to you. Then you got to explain to yourself, okay, well, why don't I have my part of the rent right now? Then you got to find a way to go hustle and make those things happen. And there's and, you, and all of the all of it begins to kind of build and build and build and build and build. And it's amazing what you can put up with. I mean, really, when you think about it, especially if you're a person that has been through addiction and you've worked through uh, recovery, you look back in hindsight, and once you get on the business side of step two and you're restored to sanity, you look back and you say, man, I was absolutely insane the way that I lived. And so now when I look back and I think about that, all, all that stuff, and like I said, it's been nearly 30 years, but I still remember the desperation of it all. I still remember the isolation of it all. I remember feeling totally alone. I was surrounded by people. I had friends. And I had other friends that were, you know, single serving friends. You know, people you meet at clubs or whatever. And you hang out and you get high or whatever. And you say, hey, man, let me get your number. And you never call. You know. You, know, you meet, you know, women there to have a good time. And you dance a few drinks. You dance a few dances and you have a few drinks. And uh, maybe do some drugs together. And then you say, hey, give me your number. And then you never call. You know, because that's the thing, it's, it's, the, it's the moment. And every new drink and every new drug always seemed like a brand new adventure. And I remember the excitement of it all. It's like when I, when I knew we had something good happening, like we knew we had some, some acid coming in from New Orleans or from Baton Rouge or whatever. We knew we had that. It was, all, it was like all week long you looked forward to it. It's like, oh, my gosh, I cannot wait for the weekend. 
not just because it was the weekend, but because we had this. We had acid. You know, all week long you might, you know, uh, find some pain pills somewhere in somebody's medicine cabinet or, uh, you know, smoke weed or drink all week. But you knew when the weekend came, we knew when the weekend came, something new and incredible was going to happen because, you know, you're going to have access to these drugs you don't ordinarily have. And so I look forward to that all week long. And so as soon as you get off work on Friday, it's like, oh, you know, listen, I got to get going. And there was nothing that could happen. I mean, it didn't matter. It wouldn't matter if somebody died. I mean, like, like even if you had, you know, you know, a family member or somebody passed away, you'd, you'd always think of an excuse why you couldn't come to that sort of stuff. Because the drugs are more important. The drugs, the alcohol, the partying, all of it was more important. And as I shared on the first show with you guys too, I mean, it's like when you begin to think about the things that you go through and the prices that you're willing to pay, in hindsight, it all looks ridiculous. In the moment, it all makes sense because you've lied and deluded yourself into thinking that this is what life is about, that my life is somehow enhanced by the fact that I have these, these chemicals. I have these things. So for a little, for a little while... For just a little while, I can escape from all of this. I can get away from all of this stuff. Because what happens is so many people out there, you know, they're on your back and you need to get to do this. You need to go back to college. You need to get a real job. You need to stop doing this. You stop doing that. All of that stuff becomes just racket in your head. And so for a while, you kind of convince yourself, you know what? I don't have to deal with any of these people all weekend long I can stay high I can stay drunk the whole weekend and I don't have to deal with that so I get a little bit of a vacation and you tell yourself well it makes all that that much more tolerable okay well I can put up with that a little bit longer now because I've had a bit of an escape and in order to be a part of that you're kind of trading a little bit of your soul you're trading a little bit of who you are you're trading a little bit of yourself every time and you convince yourself that this is how it's supposed to be I was sharing with some people earlier today I remember one night towards the very end, shortly before I got arrested, I had gotten some pharmaceuticals and they weren't what I thought they were. I didn't know a lot about pharmacology. You know, I, I thought I recognized pills and there was, there was no Google back then. You know, I had a friend that had this uh, book, this book of pharmaceuticals where you could look them up and see the picture and see the number and that sort of stuff. And so I had tried to always remember what I was looking for. So when I went to people's medicine cabinets, I would know like, say, for an example, if they had a medicine bottle that didn't have a label on it or something like that. And sometimes, too, you know, people change things up and they put all their medicine in one bottle. But um, but I was laying there one night and uh, I thought I had taken some pain pills. And uh, it wasn't. I assumed they were some heart medication of some sort. Because my heart was about to beat out of my chest. And I had <laughs> I had taken the pills, I dropped acid, and I would smoked a joint to set it all off. Because I wanted to have a good time. And then I was having this incredibly bad high. This incredibly bad trip. And I remember laying in my bed and my heart was about to beat out of my chest. And I was thinking, well, this is probably how I'm going to die. And if it's not tonight, it's the next time. And I sit there and say that, you know, through my vomit breath, right? And I convinced myself, well, this is it. I mean, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a real drug addict. I'm a real addict. I mean, I have, I have no hope for the future. You know, I can't look beyond next week. You know, all I'm thinking about is let me just make sure I can pay the rent because I don't have, so I don't have to move home. Because if I moved home in that condition, I mean, you know, it wasn't going to work. You know, it just wasn't going to work. And I'd been such an unruly kid, too. I mean, I'd been thrown out of the house a handful of times. You know, and, and it was all my fault. 
you know, I mean, listen, I, I believe, especially in hindsight, that my parents did the absolute best they could do. But I had to do what I wanted to do. And that's not to defend it. I mean, that's, that's to basically say that how sick I was, that I, I couldn't hear them. I could not hear their voices over the sound of my own ego and my own, you know, self-will run riot. And so I lied to myself. I said, these people don't really care about me. They, they don't really care. They don't understand what I'm dealing with. They'll never understand what I'm dealing with. They've never understood me. It's always been a bad relationship, and it's because they, you know, they don't love me or whatever. And you begin to tell yourself those things enough, and if you say it enough, you begin to believe it. It didn't take me long because I wanted to believe that. It's so much easier to blame it all on somebody else. It'd say, well, this is what you pushed me to. I did this because of what you did to me. That's what you tell yourself. And it could be the most minor of things. You know, we, we can blow such things out of proportion. It's incredible. Anything to justify our own behavior. Anything to justify our behavior. I mean, when I was in the throes of addiction, I could rationalize anything. There was nothing beneath me. There was nothing that I couldn't explain away. There was nothing I couldn't defend because I was smarter than you. I was more committed to the argument than you. And what happens, too, more times than not, is uh, you get a family unit that is ill-equipped on how to handle a drug addict. Because here in the South, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but I I assume it's probably the same. But in in the South, especially in in small towns, South Mississippi, uh, there are just certain things we don't talk about. One of those things is addiction. Because the, the family begins to kind of feel some of the shame, the shame that's out there. They begin to take in, you know, ownership of the shame. And so rather than kind of face you know, the situation for what it is, you know, they just kind of look the other way. They, they, they get into denial and say, well, he's not really a drug addict. This is all just a phase. They'll find a way through it. And rather than confronting the issue, you know, they'll, they'll give you some money for your rent or whatever, and uh, rather than some tough love. And, and they think they're helping the situation when they're really enabling you. At the end of the day, they're killing you. They're killing you with their love. And they're killing you with their own, their own attempts to cover up their own shame because of the fact that they've got a drug addict in the family. And it's a shame that that's the way that it is. But there are a lot of people that believe that way, that they think because you are an addict that somehow it's their fault, that somehow along the way there was something that they did wrong that made you a drug addict. And in some cases, there may be some truth to that. But in my case, it was 100% my fault. It's one of the things that I'll promise you guys, as long as you hear this show or as long as you, uh, you know, if you come hear me speak about recovery, there's a couple things that I'm going to promise you. Uh, the first one of them is, is I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I'm going to tell you exactly how the cow eats the cabbage. And I'm not going to get up there and blame anybody else for my problems. Because here's the deal. I have known in my life the right thing to do at every turn. I just didn't do it. It wasn't like a situation where I miss out there with no guidance. And I didn't have, uh, you know, there's so many young people in this world that are kind of born without a chance. You know, they're born, you know, to, to broken families or they're born to addicts or whatever. And they're really kind of born at a disadvantage well, that wasn't the case for me I mean you know listen I didn't have a you know a textbook uh, you know family growing up but I was surrounded by people that loved me and tried to teach me the right way to go I don't have an excuse I can't plead ignorance to any of that 
But what happens is you begin to, uh, you begin to rebel a little bit. I remember going to family week and uh, my mom kind of brought some of this stuff up. She goes, well, I was always too busy with this and too busy with that. And I, and I wanted, I did my best even at 19 years of age to kind of let her off the hook. So, you know what, this is on you. There was, there was nothing you could have done. I mean, it wasn't that she was an absentee parent. It wasn't that she was too busy. It was none of that. It was none of those things. It was absolutely not her fault. Even though she tried to make some of it her fault, you know, part of that's, you know, that's part of the whole Al-Anon thing, right? It's kind of convincing people how to, you know, it's not their fault because people, you know, it's not just the addict that suffers. The entire family suffers and the entire family has to recover. And sometimes that takes some professional intervention. Sometimes that takes a 12-step program for everybody, whether they be, uh, you know, an addict or, or an Al-Anon or whatever. But, um, you know, there are steps that everybody has to take to heal. And there's some steps involved in all that to kind of lead to accountability for all involved. But it's so easy to begin to delude yourself into thinking, you know what, that, you know, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm a hopeless case. And that's probably one of the things when I look back at my life when I, you know, I thought I couldn't do it. You know, when I went into treatment, I went into rehab, and, I, and they were sitting here explaining this to me. I said, you know, Steve, this is how it is, and this is how it's going to be. And it wasn't that I didn't think that, um, that I could understand the program or grasp the program. I just didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I could stay sober. I didn't think I could stay clean. I wasn't completely sure I wanted to, to be honest with you. I wasn't completely sure that I wanted to. Because if I'm being honest with you guys today, I mean, really the main reason that I agreed to go to treatment is, number one, it, it kind of delayed the, you know, me having to deface all of my friends and that sort of stuff. And there were a lot of people on the street that thought I was a narc because I'd been arrested. And I was uh, with so many people out there that had some exposure to me. And so they thought, well, this guy's a narc. And there were some people in Columbia, Mississippi that told me that, uh, hey, so-and-so's looking for you. It's probably going to be bad. So I was kind of hiding in treatment, but also, too, I began to think to myself, I just don't know if I'm capable of being clean. I mean, I have lived this way for so long. You know, I'm only, I'm only 19 years of age. I'm not even legally old enough to drink in the state of Mississippi. You know, I've got some good partying years left, so I don't even know that I really want to be clean and sober. Why do I want to waste these last few years of partying being sober? The truth of the matter is, is I would probably be dead. Either somebody would have killed me or I would have overdosed. Or I'd have, you know, killed myself and probably some other people drinking and driving. Because there was not a day that I was clean and sober. And it was so incredibly, I don't know if the word is frightening or not. But when they begin to talk about, okay, when you get out of here, you're going to need to go to meetings. I was thinking, I got to go to these stupid meetings when I get out of here. So yeah, you're going to need to go to meetings, you're going to need to get a sponsor. I'm like, I don't know if I want to do all that. I just don't know if I want to do all that. And so I thought maybe perhaps the price of sobriety was too high for me to pay. And then I remember meeting some people in the rooms, you know, back in those days when you were at treatment center, you actually got to go to real AA meetings. And I had so much respect for the street drunks. And what I mean by that is the people that didn't go to treatment, that didn't go to detox, people that just began to go to AA on their own. And relapse was a part of that for many of them. You know, they'd come for a while, they'd relapse and go back out and come back in. I thought, you know, how, how does a street drunk, how does somebody just walk in John Q. drunk off the street and come sit in these meetings 
and find a way to be sober. And uh, it was intriguing to me. And so I began to kind of talk to those people, you know, before and after meetings. I'm like, you know, hey, how long have you been in? And, you know, what are you doing? And, and the things that everybody told me were like, you know what, you need. To, it's good you're here. Keep coming to meetings. Make 90 meetings in 90 days and get a sponsor. you got to start working these steps. And I had two discussions this past week with people after the show and it's a common tale and it's not just those two people there's nothing yes there's nothing unique about those two but there's so many people that i meet and i talk to and uh, whether they be parents of addicts or or siblings of addicts or you know any brand of relationship with addicts or alcoholics i said man it just didn't work for them it just didn't work for them and so i go back to this and i always say well listen um when you got out of treatment, did they go to meetings? Oh, well, no, no, they just didn't have time. Okay. Uh, did they get a sponsor? Uh, no, no, I, I didn't get a sponsor. Did you ever work the steps? Well, you know, when we were in treatment, you know, we, we worked on the first three steps. Okay. Do you remember them? <laughs> you didn't work them then. And so it is incredible. We talk about the, uh, you know, the, the pathology of a relapse. When you go back and look, it's like, well, if all you do is just stop drinking, if that's all you do, you stop drinking and using, the chances of you staying clean and sober are next to none. Sure, there's some people out there that can white-knuckle their way through it, but here's the deal. The thing about the program is, is it gets to the root problem. You're not just a problem drinker. There is something. There is an underlying issue, whether it be a matter of abuse, whether it be a matter of a traumatic experience, whether it be, you know, some type of personality disorder. But there is a root cause to all of this. The drinking and the drugging is a symptom of a bigger problem. And so now if if all we do is take away the drugs and alcohol, now we've got a dry drunk or a dry addict that doesn't have their medicine, but they still have the same problems. And so now you've removed their coping mechanisms and haven't taught them anymore. And so that's one of the things the program does for you is to work the steps. You work the steps and you begin to clean all that garbage out of your life. And sometimes that means making some major changes. But it's incredible. And I would say almost without fail, people quit going to meetings, they don't get a sponsor. They don't work the steps. They don't stay plugged into the recovery community. And listen, I know it's a global pandemic right now, and there's a lot of excuses not to attend meetings. I'll be honest with you, I don't attend a lot of in-person meetings now either because it scares me to death. I don't want to get sick. I don't. But there are virtual meetings. There are Zoom meetings. matter of fact, there there are 24-hour meetings that the meetings never stop. That people go into these Zoom calls and these meetings and they talk and then they stay for an hour or so they leave. They come back later. Whenever, so you can kind of, the fact that you're working all day every day, that, that's not a good enough excuse. You can find a meeting to attend, even if it's not in person. And if you don't want to show your face, you don't even have to show the video in Zoom. You can just watch everybody else. You can make excuses for yourself. You can lie to yourself. I'm too busy. It won't work for me. I don't like this. The question you got to ask yourself is, do you want to get sober or not? Do you want a better life or not? I promise you, if you will try it this way for 90 days, that you will see immeasurable benefits before you're halfway through. And if you are not completely satisfied after 90 days, we will happily refund your misery. You can go right back to living how you're living. But if you give it a full try 
for 90 days, you're going to be amazed how much better you feel, how much better you feel about yourself, how much better you feel about your direction in life. And the people that love you will understand if you have to take a little time for yourself to go to meetings. You know what? Maybe you can't go every day. Maybe you can't. But you can do something recovery-related every day because it's kind of like paying your insurance premium. You know, one of the things that I do when I, when I can't make it to a meeting, I read the daily reflections. And there are a lot of times that I'll read it and I get inspired by something and I'll message somebody else and say, hey, in the daily reflections today, here's what I read. I've got some friends in recovery. And I'll say, hey, did you read the reflections today? Here's what I got out of it. It helps to know that we're not alone because that's the biggest lie of all. The biggest lie of all is that we're totally alone. Nobody could ever love us. Nobody could ever understand us. Nobody could ever accept us for who we are. And so we convince ourselves that we're all alone. But you're not all alone. You're not all alone. And I know those days, I've had them recently. <laughs> 29 years sober. That's the thing that they, they tell you there's going to come a day when you have no mental defense against that first drink. And that's where your program takes over. That's where the training takes over. Because at the end of the day, I know that I'm not alone. I know, and sometimes I have to be reminded of that. And you're not alone either. Because I can promise you I'm right there with you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.